are you the best footballer in the world right now? I think so, yes. In my mind, I'm always the best. I don't care what the people are thinking, what they say. In my mind, not just this year, but always, I'm always the best. I'm always going to say that. I knew, I knew, I knew what was going to happen. I knew I was going to get here. They didn't. There's a lot of stressful years. You know what I mean? A lot of tough times. Um, but I proved them wrong. I proved myself right. Hello, humans. Welcome to the M Word. The Manx Sports Podcast, brought to you by Martin, that's me, and Matt, that's him. Welcome back, Matthew, how are you today? Uh, yeah, I'm alright, thanks, nice yeah. relaxing weekend for once. Alright, not up to much? No, no. Christmas parties, anything like that? Um, no. this pod uh, might come out after Christmas. No, but... no, ours is uh, next week, but I'm away, so oh, right, unfortunately okay. don't get involved in no, the right, uh, okay. things that go on. I've started doing a little bit of running actually now, I'm in preparation for my Ironman next year, so that's... Coming along nicely, and my knees seem to be holding up. Good. So good. So uh, to get things going, we just want to uh, shout out to our show sponsor, uh, Billboards.im. Uh, obviously, I'd like to thank them for their continued support. Uh, their digital advertisers on the Isle of Man. You'll have seen their boards down at the C terminal in the in town. So you want to get your brand out, your message out. They're the, they're the boys to go and see. That's Billboards.im. So thanks to those guys, the future of advertising. Also, if there's any uh, obviously other sponsors that be interested in uh, supporting the podcast. Uh, that would help us to continue to develop and push the message out that we're, that we're trying to promote here. Please get in touch. Uh, it's all about promoting grassroots and, and chatting about Alaman sport in general. Please do get in touch. So, Matthew, as normal, on the introduction music there, we had some audio. Do the voices ring any bells? They do, and I would like to actually get one right. So, I think that was Ronaldo and Conor McGregor. Indeed, yeah, indeed. So both of those clips are the, the two guys who are renowned for obviously being top of their sport, but also employing the, the benefits, I guess, of uh, using sports psychology, which uh, really brings us into uh, our guest today, who's joined us in our lust, lust, the, our studio. Uh, Rich Rich Sill, thanks for joining us today Thank for a chat. Thanks for having me, guys. No, pleasure. Uh, so Rich, uh, sports psychology helps co- coaches, athletes, parents in that in that arena as works in rugby athletics tennis women i'm sure many more sports that we'll, we'll, we'll touch into he's also done research into tt and experiences around that uh, and the role of grit in ultra sports so i'm sure there's a there's a, a lot to talk about here uh, so let's dig in if that's okay yeah so the first question is inevitably we everyone gets is you know come over manx 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 or manx is the hills <laughs> Well, my mum's Manx is the Hills, and um, my dad is a Scouser, so um, mm-hmm. I'm not Manx is the Hills, I'm afraid. Were you born over here, then? I was born here, yeah. So you're Manx. Manx, 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 yeah. Manx, Manx. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah, you decide. Yeah, <laughs> and where did you, so you, you say you were born here, whereabouts did you grow up on the island? Yeah, I was born here, um, we lived in uh, Douglas for a couple of years, then moved up to Ramsey, um, dad was working, he was working in Midland Bank. Yeah, okay. your, your listeners probably won't know what that means, but um, they used to sponsor a lot of cycling club bank. Yeah, dad was working in the bank, so um, he was the manager at Ramsey, I think. So we mm. moved to Ramsey. I think in those days the manager had to be local. Oh, right. Um, so we went there for long, for a year, and then we moved away to the Wirral. Um, we were there for two years, I think, and then he got moved again. So we went up to a place called Exton near Chorley, near Preston. Okay. Um, and we were there for, I'm going to say about 10 years and moved back to the island at, at 15, I think, for for the final year of my GCSEs and started at Castle Russian then. So, um, 
And during all those moves around, were you, were you doing sport at that age? Were you into sport? Um, well, my mum's not into sport at all. Um, my dad is. He's uh, He'd watch anything. He'd watch any sport on TV. Um, he used to be, as a kid, he was he was a hill walker. He really loved the hills, and him and his mates would hitchhike up to the Lake District, uh, spend the weekend up there. Um, latterly, then he got into he got into race walking when he came to the island. Um, some of the guys that you'll you'll know, Alan Callow and uh, Mitch Jock and people like that, he he was walking with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we moved away, he, he he met up with some guys and started running. Um, and eventually got into marathons, and that's really my my first memory is being dragged to these marathons. And my brother and I do these little mini marathons, and we get a bottle of pop for 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 completing it. And uh, yeah, that that was my first real memory of sport, uh, to be honest. And you obviously carried on then, because I know you do it. I've done a fair amount of running. Was that your primary sport then as a teenager? <laughs> and you sort of primary, maybe loosely, do I? I no, know. it was. Um, I don't know. Growing up in the northwest, it was a, it's a real sort of hotbed of sports so um with with dad's an evertonian um so he used to take us and the podcast to take <laughs> he, he took us to goodison a few times it was it it's punishment have, i see <laughs> it must have been around that 85 86 era when everton were really year, top of the game they, yeah. they'd won the league and uh, they had some great players at that time uh gary lineker was playing and then he went on to to obviously win the golden boot in the 86 world cup so I think just to see see guys at the top of their game, um, you know, was, was brilliant for me. And then football around there, I, I had mates. We used to go and watch uh, Preston North End, uh, Blackburn, uh, Wigan as well. Uh, Tranmere was our local team in uh, on the Wirral, and I remember Dad taking me to a game at, at Wigan. It was uh, the old Springfield Park, and it was uh, there was one end. It was a grass bank. Uh, so we sat on the grass bank. We were watching Tranmere Wigan, and I, I clearly remember the the away fans were were in what I can only describe as a cage. And um, for me, sort of at, at that age, that was a real eye opener, you know. Um, so yeah, got to see a bit of football. Um, so that was good. Um, Play much yourself? <laughs> played a little bit, but not very well. We can get onto that later. <laughs> um, Cricket as well was big in Lancashire, so I, I don't know if it's still still the case, but um, the the Lancashire League had a, a rule where they had to have one professional playing in their team. That's so, you. So, <laughs> so you'd have these these tiny village teams with someone like Viv Richards or Clive Lloyd or Steve War, Shane mm. Warne, people like that playing. So as you can imagine, yeah. you know the the kids in the area, um, you know it really mm. inspired them and. The, you know, I think a similar thing happened in Yorkshire, so you can see why Lancashire and Yorkshire have, have done so well at cricket over the years. Um, you know, to see these these top class pros in your local village playing to, you know, it's. Uh, Does that still happen now? I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to look into it. Um, but yeah, like I say, some of these some of these village clubs were tiny. Uh, so you moved back to the island when you're 15. And did you do much sport on the island then when you came back? Yeah, here? well, you're sort of into I presume work and life after that at some stage. Well, I, th- I think even before then, it was still still in the northwest. There were there were things like um, like my dad was big into football, but then a family friend introduced us to rugby league, and we started going to watch Wigan. Mm. Dad got really into that, and and I'd go, we'd go. I think they played on a Friday night in those days down at Central Park. 
so we'd, we'd go every other Friday and I got really into that and went went off to to some away games as well went to a final in Leeds and went down to the old Wembley for the mm-hmm. Challenge Cup final and again at Wigan at that time were they were the best in the world so people like Ellery Hanley you know seeing them seeing them up close it was, was fantastic and then because rugby league was professional and rugby union was amateur you had guys like um, Tuigamala who played for the All Blacks and then then he rocks up at Wigan so you know it was it was just fantastic seeing seeing these these top pros mm-hmm. um, and then it, it Another story I remembered actually. I was out running the other day, and this came to me. I hadn't thought about this for oh, twenty years. Or more. There was um, there was an American football team um, that played in Lancashire called the Lancashire Lynx. Okay. And I know you two guys are into American football, so this is for you. Um, <laughs> Lancashire Lynx, they were called, and they played at the um, Chorley FC's local stadium. So I I remember a couple of times going up there. Um, to watch it wasn't it wasn't high quality but you know imagine, it was yeah. something different and I, I helped with the chain gang on on one one occasion but yeah that was that was good fun yeah yeah right um, you didn't fancy joining in I don't know I think I, I've got a feeling I went for a trial as a child at, um, they, they had an open trial at Preston um, and I, I think I went down I don't know whether I actually trialed or I chickened out but um yeah, I was I was definitely really interested at that time. I think it was when the Bears had been over and right. you had the they've fridge. Looked, they've tried to launch a league, haven't they? I think through Europe as well. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Far. I think yeah. so. But it, you know, it, it must have had quite a following because I remember at school in the in the yard we'd play. You know, we'd be throwing a ball around. So yeah, right. yeah, it was good. And then so at school, I guess it was team sports. Uh, at school I was at in Blackburn, it was it was um, rugby, football, cricket. Um, so I really enjoyed those team sports. Um, and running then you mentioned about running there running more recently was that something you were doing at that age and when you were, came back to the, or came back to the army? I don't think you're Manx Manx anyway if you didn't come back here to the 15 but we can argue about um, that I, I think I did cross country at school in Blackburn I, I got house colours for cross country um, get on the mantelpiece at home <laughs> and um, I, I don't know really I, I was it was really free play um, for us at that time so I we, we lived at the bottom of this estate and between where we were in the M6, there was some woods and some fields, and we just, like the lads, we just used to play down there. We'd be jumping over the streams and climbing trees and building dens, and, and, and that was it, really. Yeah, right. um, I had a bike. Uh, I had a paper round. Um, so that, that was good. I had a, I could do it in 11 minutes on my bike if I, if I really gassed it. Um, I but threw that, the papers in the river. But yeah, that that was independence really, and 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 that was great. And I, re- I remember one time, I used to have to take the obligatory 10, 10 p. So if I needed to make a phone call, then oh, right, then okay. I could. Because you had a puncher or yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'd um, yeah, I'd, I'd gone off on my bike. I think Mum thought I was quite local, but I'd I'd actually cycled down the A forty nine to Wigan, <laughs> which is about ten miles. I think it was about ten years old, something like that. So I phoned up from this phone box. Mum answered. You know, she says, "Where are you?" I said, "I'm in Wigan." She's like, "You won't get home now." So yeah, that was. Um, yeah, yeah I was out on my bike ring, a lot. to pick you up. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so then, get getting back to coming back to the Isle of Man, and uh, I presume GCSEs. Where did you do them on the island? Did them at Castle Russian. Right. Okay. Um, I so obviously moved to the south of the island. I presume when you came. Yeah. Back. Yeah. Mum's from Port Mary, so we right. moved to Port Mary. Right. Um, so yeah, Castle Russian was. Again, Castle Russian was rugby and football. Uh, I started playing football at Colby, right. just just with mates from school. Really, I was 
anyone who's ever seen me play knows I'm not a footballer. Um, but I, I did enjoy it. You know, it was, it was a good crack, and yeah, we had a good time. Was sport always just about a hobby for you then? Just there was no desire to go further on. It was just. Yeah, it, it was. It, my motivation was always just playing sport with my mates. Really, mm-hmm. um, it it was all team sport. I'd never done anything individual. Um, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. And then I, I think gradually what happened at Colby was they, they all started moving away to, they, some of them were quite ambitious and they started drifting away to other clubs. And uh, I realised that kind of they'd all gone and I, you know, the team, most of the team were 10 years younger than me. So so I, I just thought, well, I need something different now. So I went back to, to rugby, which I'd enjoyed as a youngster and started playing at Nomads. All right, okay. And yeah, yeah, really enjoyed that. And I, I still love watching rugby, although I wouldn't play it now. Did you travel off Ireland with Nomads? Because they do they go off Ireland? Yeah, yeah, we we played a few. We had, we had a good team at one point. We played away in the the Cheshire Cup, I think it was at that time. Mm. We played at Port Sunlight. We won a won a game at Port Sunlight, um, which was a good place for me because in my uni days I'd played at Mossley Hill in Liverpool and I'd made my debut at Port Sunlight and scored a try. So, yeah, I got good memories of that place. And then we went to we played a team called Bowden, who were they were pretty good. Um, and they narrowly beat us, but oh. yeah, that's I remember that season quite clearly. Yeah. Okay. Right. So how how long were you playing rugby up to? Um, it's hard to remember. I think it was about late late twenties maybe okay. when I I sort of called it a day on that. Okay. I was going to say is as the the general bigger subject of sports psychology was that something you were is that something of interest to you at that time or was that something? Or was it just maybe playing these sports that maybe got you thinking about sports psychology a little more? I don't think I'd ever really consciously thought about it, um, but I I do recall one incident we'd been, it, I think it was the Junior Ireland Golf Championships at Pull Rose, and I must have been about 15 or 16, and one of my club mates from Port St Mary, he, he had a decent chance at winning it, and we, we, were, we, we must have crossed over at some point, I think he was on the 16th or something, and his ball was in the trees, and he was trying to play this shot that, you know, even Tiger Woods wouldn't be able to manage and I, I just said to him just kind of you know hack it out get up and down finish with a couple of pars and you're in with a shout and and to me that just seemed normal whereas uh, you know he, he was trying to just pull off the unbelievable um, and yeah thinking back on it that's probably my first kind of dabbling with sports psychology I think in that sense so, so as an observer then you'd be looking at that and going the rational thing here is to do this and this, as you explained, but he's under pressure, I guess, putting pressure on himself and, and potentially making incorrect decisions due to the outside pressure. Well, not yeah. outside pressure, pressure in his own head. Yeah, decision-making when you're yeah. under pressure, your thinking's clouded. Um, yeah, putting extra pressure on yourself. Yeah, you just you should get out of the present moment. And I think, yeah, what he needed at that time was someone to say, look, don't be silly. Yeah, yeah. As a caddy would do in a, you know, with, with a pro. And why weren't you stood next to me in the bar way or what's the story <laughs> here, you know? Uh, so obviously that's one of the, the or one of the main subjects we want to talk talk about is the psychology of psychology of sport. So my very limited well, I'm gonna let you really explain for the simpletons in this room, which is Matt and I, and uh, maybe potentially part of our audience, hopefully not. Uh, just maybe a bit of background to psychology in general and then uh, where where it's starting to get applied in sort of a one oh one guide to sport psychology. Sigmund Freud. Yeah, Sigmund Freud. I was going to throw out there. Freud. So that's, yeah, that's about the oh, best name. And maybe this. I think I read something about the five uh, perspectives of psychology around 
biological cognitive behavior type of thing so and now like i'm trying to sound like what i'm talking about since you shoot me down i'll, I'll shut up i'm impressed you know about freud or, uh, yeah, right, okay. we'll get you on the couch later and uh, <laughs> interpret your dreams and <laughs> um, but my my first again thinking back my first interest in psychology was um it was a, a gcse english course and we we studied something called the the milgram experiment so um stanley milgram was uh He's like a, a major psychologist. You, you know, you, your listeners will be able to, to look him up and read all about him. Um, but he believed that humans have a tendency to obey authority, even if that means violating their personal codes of moral and ethical conduct. Oh, okay. So he, he was Jewish, and his interest in that topic came about following the Second World War and the atrocities in the, the Nazi death camps. Um, so it... That was that was the study that that we were looking at, and uh, you know it's a fascinating study. It's been critiqued over the years, but um, yeah, that, that that was the thing that that sort of piqued my interest really. Right. Um, but back in, when I was yeah fifteen, I guess. Right. Okay. Um, but yes, psychology. So psychology is the scientific study of mind and behaviour. So um, thoughts and feelings on the inside, and then actions on the outside right. in simplistic terms. Right. Yeah. So is there uh, different ways that uh, psychology's approach. So, if we have twenty different psychologists in the room, would they would there be a general fundamental understanding that things are dealt with in this in this way, or has each psychologist got sort of different theories about it, or are there different theories out there? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, the big debate in in psychology really is is nature versus nurture. So, the individual uh, versus the environment, and what's the dominant force when it when it comes to behaviour. I assume everyone, like everyone, just then has a different opinion of that, or is the yeah, yeah, right. essentially. So, it, it, if I give you a potted history, really, so, so as you said, Freud is is probably the the granddaddy of modern day psychology. So you, you're aware of the lying on a couch and having dreams interpreted. So that was his, um, right. you know, psychotherapy in the early days. Um, so his belief was that um, the dominant force for behaviour is innate drives. So basically our, our biology, our genes. So uh, if you think of basic drives for, for food and drink and sleep, uh, so he, he was big on, on that side of it. So basically it's your biology that drives your behavior. Okay, right, okay. And then a little bit later, similar time, so late 1800s, early 19, uh, 1900s, there was um, a guy called Ivan Pavlov probably heard of Pavlov's Dog, dogs yeah. yeah so he was he was a physiologist actually and he was doing some study into salivation in dogs I don't know why um <laughs> and he and he, he stumbled across this this psychological discovery really so so what happened was he was presenting dogs with food and measuring how much they were salivating okay. so what happened was his assistant would ring a bell um to tell him that the food was ready and then he would take it and put it in front of the dogs. But what he found was that the dogs started to salivate based on the sound of the bell. So clearly they've gone from uh, a biological cue to salivate, the um, the food being presented to them, to a cue from the environment, which is the ringing of a bell. Right. So, mm. you know, that, that was the first kind of shift really. Right. Um, so yeah, you know, diff- different people have different approaches. Um, so the you know whether it is the individual environment or or a combination of the two there was um some work done with soldiers uh, us servicemen in vietnam 
So the high rates of heroin addiction with soldiers in Vietnam. Okay. And what they did when, when these guys came home, they, they studied them and followed them. And uh, relapse rates were about 5%. So basically, when they were taken out of the Vietnam environment and they came home, you know, they they came off the drugs straight away, which is in stark contrast to, to usual rehabilitation. You know, somebody would get taken out of their environment, go to a rehabilitation centre, get cleaned up, and then they go back to that environment with all the cues and the triggers. Um, so, you know, that, that was really interesting because classic sort of biological theory would say, you know, addiction is a, because of your personality traits. Whereas this kind of study showed that, well, there's environmental triggers as well. So your environment, your situation is also contributing to this. Right, okay. Interesting, okay. So then move it, applying that general, those general rules into sport. Well, yeah. So so if you take that into a sporting context then, so if, if you've, you know, you, you've done, let's say, I know you two cyclists, so you, you've, you've done a race, you know, you've done well. So I say, well done to you. What, what am I saying well done to? Well done, genes. Right. or well done environment okay. yeah. and yeah. quite justifiably you would say well I had something to do with that as well yeah. um, so so the state of my genes then. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. so yes yes there's your biology yes there's the environment but the, there's a person there as well with some form of decision making capacity Argue, it's arguable how much decision making capacity they have but there's, there's an individual there with decision making capacity uh, what, why do you say well, you mentioned there an element of decision making. Is it not all in their control, or is that too black and white? Well, we're, we're probably getting deep Trying into philosophical territory now. But um, yeah, so, some some people would argue that we have free will over our actions. Others would would say that you know we're bounded by other factors such as our experience or or our values and beliefs. And what's your your view on? You know, what's your general view on those two opposing uh, things? Or is it somewhere in the middle? I'm, well, I've been reading quite a lot about it. Um, I, I'm still undecided, really. Um, I think I'll always be undecided. But uh, yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting debate to have. Do do we have free will over our actions or not? And, and sorry, is that why you're saying on fences? New things or more studies are coming out all the time, giving different views, or is it not as? And I guess not going too deep into it. Is it's not as clear cut as it's one or the other. So. There's some, there's a like a, a, I don't know what you call them, a it's paper, a, as it were, or, or something that might change your change your view or your perspective on what you may have previously thought. So it's an ever changing sort of debate in that sense. Yeah, well, it's kind of in real science terms. There's not something that you can you can count up and measure. Um, you know, this is deep deep philosophical thinking. Um, and it gets into sort of. Um, the meaning of life and you know our deeper purpose all, all those kind of issues so i i mean my my sort of experience with psychology so far um I, i've done a lot of phys- philosophical reading and it's you know it's, it's really interesting it's fascinating to me and and i love it yeah but uh, isn't it slightly horrifying in some ways that you, you sit here and talk and not you but generally about you don't have free will or there's an element of non-free will because that's quite horrifying thought you just stand back and go I make my own decisions. I do everything I want to do, subject to someone having a gun to my head. And you're saying some of that's, I guess, subconsciously going on. I guess it's subconscious. A lot of that going on. You don't have that free will. Well, if 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 you go back to some of those things we just talked about with Freud, you know, believing that behaviour is driven by biology, and and the other guys who believe it's environment, 
they are deterministic um, points of view. So, so they are basically saying you do not have any free will. You are a product of your your biology or your environment. And do you believe you can change that? Change that. So, if you're a product of your environment, product of X, Y, Z, do you believe over time, whether it's through therapy, whether it's through self-learning, that you can change those? Because I guess they come down to ha- some of them. It might be habits, I would guess. And can you then, I guess, help athletes in, in the scenarios we're talking about, help them change them? Well, them? well, in their view, in their deterministic view, then no, the, no. you know, you you are a product of your of your of your again, like I say, the, your genes or your, or your environment. So you don't have any any agency in right. in what happens to you. That's yeah, a, well, that, in, just in that sole context, that's you know quite horrifying. Really, it's isn't a scary it? thought, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I might have just gone crying the corner. For a minute, <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so you've obviously started to work with athletes, parents, coaches, mm-hmm. uh, locally. Uh, talk us maybe through some of those scenarios. Not obviously. Where you're helping providing benefits, how you know what you're talking to them about, what what people need help okay. with, because again we're dealing with, I think sports psychology. I guess certainly ten years ago you you kind of just associate with elite athletes and it's something they add on to add value to everything they're doing already. Mm-hmm. Where now it's it, it certainly seems to be, I suppose as everyone tries to get that slight marginal gain on everyone else, uh, coming into just you know grassroots sport. So yeah, it'd be interesting to. See how you've seen that work locally, and I know you go away a bit in work as well. Yeah, well, it, I mean, if it, maybe if I talk you through how I got into it in mm, the first yeah, place, please, that yeah. give you a few, you know, bit of a window into my soul, if you like, and then, uh, and <laughs> then, the and then where we are now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah get me on the couch. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, I went away after uh, after school, and I went to uni in Liverpool, did a geography degree. Didn't really know what I wanted to do, but kind of. Just, just went because it's the dumb thing. Um, came back and didn't really know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Obviously, finance on the island is is the, mm-hmm. the biggest sector. So, so I ended up getting a job in an accountancy firm. Qualified as a, a chartered accountant, and then, yeah, yeah, did that. A few different places. wasn't terrible, but didn't ever particularly enjoy it. Um. And then I think it was about ten years ago. Yeah, it was two thousand and nine, ten. My wife and I had uh, we we had a sabbatical from work, so we we both took six or seven months off work. We went travelling, and it was really a great opportunity to get away and have a think, really, about what I was doing and and why I was doing it. Um, Psychology already kicking in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think you know they say travel broadens your soul, and and I think it did. It allowed us to get away from the day to day and. And actually, you know, we've just been talking about determinism and and an agency. You know, why why am I not taking any action uh, over this job career that I'm in that I'm not really enjoying? Um. So that yeah, we we started discussing various different options for me, and we sort of there's this classic Venn diagram that you see where your your passion, your skills, and where you think you can make a difference overlap. So. So we we kind of went through that process, not in a strict way like that, but you know our conversations kind of led us down that path, and we came up with a few ideas, and and um, sports psychology was the one that really appealed to me. And during your work there previously, were you still taking an interest in psychology in general? Um, yeah, I was. I was always interested in it. I, I'll tell you that the main place I I was really digging into it was reading athlete autobiographies. They, you know, they're the ones that give 
give me real you know real insight and and that was probably the area um that I was looking at I was, i'd been doing a bit of coaching as well and i guess looking back on it my style of coaching um sort of gave me some clues as to as to what i was i was trying to do through sport yeah um so yeah where are we up to then so yeah so, well maybe just on the autobiographies looking back then there's some that jumped out that were kind of left an impression with you that psychology was important to them as part of their i remember one of the first ones i read was nigel mansell right uh, back, back in the day and uh, <laughs> that left an impression on me at that yeah. age i could learn to read maybe five years ago <laughs> Yeah, there's a, I, don't, I don't know which stick out. There, there's one. Um, there was one. Bill Walsh, the ex oh, um, San Francisco 49ers coach, and his his was about um, putting in standards of performance. The, the book's called the, the Score Takes Care of Itself. Okay. I don't know if you've read it or not. No, we'll get it off footnotes. But it's about um, basically forget about the score. Just have a process, follow the process, and the score will take care mm. of itself. And that, you know that's that's a book I've read many times, and it's um, it's one I've recommended a lot, and I've still got a copy on my bookshelf. Um, we uh, that that pro- in the words good, that process and deal with your process is something we we touched on with uh, when we chatted to Sam in the first episode about mm-hmm. uh, yeah all you can deal with, and they talk about it at performance level is just deal with what what you're in control of, mm-hmm. and ignore everything else around it. Whether it's a score, who's in front of you, etc. All you can do is deal with your process. Mm-hmm. I think that's so interesting. Well, it. it something that came up in in your chat with Sam I was I was interested in because I was when we were going through this process when we were traveling I was you know I I was really questioning why am I not getting any meaning out of of what I'm doing in my in my work it just it just felt really trivial what I was doing Um, and my wife's a teacher um, and you know Sam talks about the ripple effect that he has with his work and that you know I can't think of another career that has a greater ripple effect than a teacher and I was seeing the job satisfaction that she had. She was making a positive impact on people's lives, and it just started connecting up really with my my sort of meaning. What you know, what what do I want out of life? And um, yeah, as I said, so you come back then, start st- thinking about I need to start studying, and or you want to start studying psychology and not do accounts. Yeah, pretty much. So um, we looked into what's the training route. And it is quite a big decision, I guess. I wouldn't quite say midlife, but you're not twenty at this stage, are you? It's it's a career shift and a half. There's a lot of, um, or, or there's more research now on the midlife crisis. Right. Yeah, and it, it's really interesting because it is about people trying to connect with their deeper purpose. Um, hmm. But we'll we'll pull that to one side <laughs> yeah. for now. <laughs> so yeah, I, I started looking into right. What what was the training pathway? And it's, it's quite a long and arduous process. So for most people, it takes about seven to 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got uh, a three-year degree in psychology, which is accredited by the British Psychological Society. So there's a, you know, there's a standard that these institutions have to meet. So from then, you have to go on to an accredited uh, a master's course in sports psychology. So you're getting the sports-specific elements there. And from then you have to do supervised training. So as you would if you were a clinical psychologist or an educational psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you know, generally it's it's probably six, seven years plus. And was that you on the island or did you go back across to do this? So I found uh, an online psychology degree, which was with the University of Derby. Um, I wasn't keen at that point to, you know, to just jack everything in. 
you know, I wanted to sort of just take baby steps really. Uh, so I, I found this online degree, which was accredited, so that was great. So I was working full time and then I was doing my degree in the evenings. We had two kids during that time mm-hmm. as well, so I, I was pretty busy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did it at half pace, so it, it took me it took me about six years to do the degree. Mm-hmm. And it was always a case of, right, I'll do the degree and see what happens. I'd, I think when I first got into the world of work, I was I was always thinking long term and pension and blah 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 and 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 more so now I sort of look more short term. Mm. So it it was all it was always let's do the degree and see what happens. And I got to the end of it, and uh, I thought you know I fancy doing the next step, the masters. So I applied. Well, actually, I spoke to quite a few people. Um, it was difficult decision to choose where to go. So I, I spoke to quite a few people who were really, really helpful and um, are still in touch, actually. Um, and I chose Liverpool John Moores in the end because they've got a, a great reputation um, in terms of applied work, teaching and research. So it, it just felt like the right place for me. Hmm. Um, and I met some really great mentors there uh, who, who made a massive impact on my life. Um, so you travelling back and forth then studying and yeah I, I was so I, I quit the job at that point and then so I was, I was effectively full time master's student and I was yeah I was commuting I was I was a, away for one one night a week mm. um, and yeah again quite big decisions aren't they you know especially if you've got family and that well you maybe not think that but not, you know it's quite a big jump from you know you're trying to create a family environment you know create an income you know support your family and you, you appreciate you've got a long you talk about short-term vision, but you've got a long-term vision of what, what you want to do, but uh, I don't know, early 30s, I guess, mid-30s, that was, taking that decision's brave. It, yeah, Support I suppose. I, I think with risk, there's there's a lot of elements to risk, and I, or, or we, you know, this was a, a joint decision, my wife and I, that the risk was just financial. That, that was the that was the only risk, was a financial risk. Um the risk of not doing it was far greater, we felt. So yeah. that was our decision-making process. That's and interesting, that, that that comment then about, you know, the other side of the risk. People just look at the, I suppose, mm-hmm. the, the, the the immediate risk, which, you know, in that situation is financial, wouldn't think of, if I don't do it, what's the risk? Mm-hmm. People don't have to well, look at I mean, the, the financial risk, you, you know, we've just read in the, the news the last week, there's a, you know, there's a shortage of accounts in the Isle of Man. I, I knew I'd, I'd get another job, that, that mm-hmm. was not an issue. Um, the risk was that I I gave up this opportunity, and then you know how would I feel about that three, five, ten years down the line? Mm-hmm. And it was actually, I think it was when the kids came along. Really, my you know my sort of mindset shifted. That that's the point where you should be making responsible decisions. Mm-hmm. I know some people thought it was irresponsible, not least my parents, <laughs> but I'm, I'm pleased to say they're they're on side now. And and you've obviously reached the dizzy heights of this podcast. Well, now, yeah, so, yeah, that's it. What what else have I got left to yeah, achieve? Yeah, retire now. <laughs> switch back to accountancy work. So yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a long training route, which I'm thankfully nearly at the end of now, um, and and I'm glad I've gone down this route because there are a lot of kind of cowboys and charlatans, gurus type in the industry mm-hmm. who who are giving sports psychologists a bad name, and the the kind of powers that be. The, the psychological society and the health and care professions council they're really clamping down on these people now and hopefully we'll be able to to drive them out sooner mm. rather than later mm. 
And you mentioned there, you're nearly at the end. What 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 is the end? The end of official studies because ultimately, like anything, you continue to learn every day after that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the yeah the official sort of end. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've got some research projects that that I've, I'm just completing at the moment. Um, so hopefully by the end of next year they'll be all done. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, we can maybe talk about those later. But I've done some work in with the TT and okay, yeah. and long term injury, which is really exciting. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, we'll pick that up definitely. Mm-hmm. So then to just to. I suppose set the scene a little bit. You work work locally with, I mentioned earlier, coaches, athletes, parents, etc. Talk us a little bit through what you're doing there, what you're seeing there, how it's how you're helping. Ultimately, yeah. Well, uh, kind of my my take on on sports psychology is that it's yes, it's about performance, but it's about well being as well. I I honestly see the two being inextricably linked. So. So that that's my approach really is is to do with um, performance and well-being. Um, so that would be looking at, at the whole person rather than just the athlete. Um, you know, if, if we talk about identity, we can talk about the athlete being part of your identity, mm-hmm. and traditional psychology would just focus on on that part of the person. Whereas whereas my approach is it's kind of a, a bit more holistic. Um, but then in that scenario, it's kind of everything's on the table. So, so it might be something from your wider life that's that's holding you back, performance or well-being wise. So it's really important that that my sessions are confidential. That's that's key to the way I work. Yeah. Um. So that obviously there's, those sessions are just understanding what makes them tick, or yeah. why they're ticking ticking at that moment in time, and yeah. obviously what their issues if it's sport related, what they're challenges are maybe not issues maybe yeah so essentially it's um taking the time to un- understand uh, what what the what the presenting issues are so so often let's take an example of of kids there might be some low level frustration behavior anger maybe um so that that's what they'll they'll come to me with and then then we start sort of digging a bit deeper so in, in what situations are those behaviors showing themselves um, and, and we just take it from there really and is that athletes and coaches and or parents that might you know, perhaps use an example of a younger person bringing those to you saying little Johnny's he's showing these reactions and we, we need to really dig into why that's happening yeah I mean I'd, I'd say probably the majority of, of people that I've worked with they've, they've come to me in the first place because their let's call it frustration with sport is spilling over into their, their wider life um, so again, you know, going back to well-being, how how can we separate the two? They, you know, they, they have to be interlinked. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to pick out a, a regular type of case because, you know, my view is that we're all individual, we're all different. So there's no one size fits all. If you know, if somebody lacks confidence, I can't just get a potion off the shelf and say, there you go, that's yeah, your confidence yeah. sorted. You know, my view is that 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 we have to take a sort of wider approach to it and and also in that respect um i I believe that the client the person who's coming to me they're they're the expert on themselves you know i really believe that they have the answers it's just it's me helping them find those answers uh, rather than me it's kind of being a teacher telling them telling them what to do that's not me and when these people are coming to you do they already know or can identify what may be an issue or do they know that something is out of balance and they need help to 
to try and find that or is it a case of kind of in between yeah so so they'll generally come with a symptom so let's say they're, they're feeling anxious about big competitions mm. so kind of traditional mental skills psychology would say okay relaxation imagery a bit of breathing that'll sort you out happy days whereas you know if, if you probe a bit deeper then you might get to the cause of the issue then so so you can deal with the cause rather than the symptoms so that anxiety might come from um, pressure that's being exerted from a parent that anxiety might come from a poor coach athlete relationship that anxiety might come from a fear of re-injury um, you know it could be any number of causes um, but yeah generally they'll present with some sort of symptom that's, that's interesting so is, the, is there a shift now from uh, or a movement has always been the case where those preventative measures have always just been not always masking the underlying problem but is there a shift now in sports psychology or is that just your view or has it always been that way it's just your approach is well yeah you might be nervous but there's probably an underlying issue and i need we need to look at potentially what that is i, I think there's yeah there's definitely an underlying shift with this um you know now we're taking well-being more seriously but there's there's also we've got to consider that sometimes uh, these sessions are time limited so it might be that you present before your biggest race of the season with confidence issue so you know it might be that we have to use one of these performance related techniques because we don't have time to, to yeah. dig into the underlying causes so um, you know you know you can see in like olympic games or, or world cups things like that where these techniques would be used because you, you basically need to put a sticking plaster on to get this person through the competition and then maybe afterwards you can look at some of the deeper underlying right. uh, issues. I think I heard somewhere like there's a there's a quote or reference. When you're born, you're just born with two fears. I think I can't exactly remember what they were, but they're not fear of performing, fear of mm. failing. Uh, so therefore, going back to maybe the earlier point about your environment and what you're brought up in, that those those fears are are, are, are grown within you and they're not actually there, which I guess is part of the, the digging down to find out what they are to ultimately eliminate them i guess yeah i mean a lot of it seems to revolve around identity and ego um social rejection which i think is our biggest fear is that you know outside of the the sports environment that probably links to public speaking which i read the other day 77 percent of people are, are fearful of public speaking mm -hmm. and it's because we don't want to stand up there and and look an idiot and people think that we're we're daft or stupid or a failure or you know, if I can't speak in front of X many people, then I'm a failure. Um, so social rejection, you know, going back to evolutionary times, you know, when we were part of a tribe, if we got rejected by the tribe, then, you know, we'd had it. Right. So, you know, we can understand where that comes from. Right. Okay, very interesting. So then, so you work, uh, and those, well, those athletes, those coaches, what typically do you see more coming to speak to you? Are they coaches... Well, I suppose, it, well, yeah, I think one coach is pushing athletes saying they potentially have a problem. Or is athletes self-aware that they've got things they need to deal with? It's a bit of both. Uh, do you just speak to coaches to help coaches outside of athlete-specific things? Yeah, co coaches have started to to be more forthcoming, asking for help with setting up their training environments, culture, um, organisation is big at the moment. So how can we set up our culture optimally um, so that, that kids are thriving in, in the grassroots environment. Um, That's interesting. So that, that tends to be where coaches come from, parents. Are all coaches open to that? Sorry, just the um, coaches. Well, 
there's some people are open to psychology, some aren't. Mm. Um, you know, again, we're all individual. Um, but the, you know, the ones that, that that do buy into it, yeah, I think there's loads we can do on a on a grassroots basis. And I think the Isle of Man is is so well placed to to actually take psychology to grassroots. And and I think that's the area where we can really affect the most amount of people. If we can, you know, optimize these training environments for kids, then they're going to come through their mental skills learning is going to be accelerated they're going to have great coping strategies for for sport and you know more importantly their wider life because we forget that a, a small minority of these kids are going to end up as professional athletes a very small minority most of them we hope will have a lifelong love of sport uh, and, and that would be a great win and what ages are these kids that you actually um talking to okay so yeah there's there's i mean at some point you have to use your judgment as to what age to work with yeah um the young the youngest i've worked with is is 12 and and that was in concert with a parent mm. so so there was the three of us were working together i think any younger than that would be really difficult mm. and i'd actually probably prefer to work with the parents because they're the ones who are going to be able to influence yeah. the child that, more than me because that's the thing when you're saying about the, that graphics level is I guess thinking back to George's one is that some people are more receptive and how, how, how are you going to tell a mm. pre-teen how they should be thinking in that sort of sense and it would just be I guess well it makes your life a lot more difficult if you were trying to um, coach a kid to, to think that deeply at that sort of young age, I guess. But it's probably a real challenge, I would guess. I, I think it's, I think it's a lot more basic. Even at that level, it's it's even about understanding the motivation, the different motivations of the kids. You know, you you could be let let's say a, a football coach coaching under tens. So you might have some that want to be pro footballers, some that just love kicking around with their mates, some. That just want to get out of the house for an hour because they've got a poor home environment you know it could be any number of things and as a coach by knowing their different motivations then you can you know you can change the way you coach around them mm. because they've got different goals mm. you're talking earlier then about uh, public speaking i suppose that general same philosophy would just work in any leadership role really that psychology side of things yeah so i mean we're talking about a, you mm. know a, a group of athletes here but yeah whether it's any other type of performance, so that might be dance, it might be music, uh, it might be business. If, if you think business leaders in charge of companies with multi-million pound turnover, you know, they're under pressure as well. Mm. Um, there are times when, when they have to perform and they have to perform consistently well. So, so yeah, it's a, applicable to, to many different domains, I think. Um, but I love sports. So, that's <laughs> <laughs> so, so look, you mentioned earlier about the satisfaction your wife gets from her job. Now you're doing this and getting fairly knee deep in it. Do you do you see that ripple effect and that? Do you get that satisfaction from help? Do you see that when the athlete, you know, or might come back and say, or the coach saying, oh, this this technique's working. This is helping me. You find that satisfaction. That it's hard to believe that maybe their counsel didn't give you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just love what I'm doing. It's it, it's nice. You know, I just like to be contributing in in a positive manner, and and whether that be through through the lecturing that I do, or through workshops, or through one to one sessions, or helping coaches um, set up their training environment, or even the way they they question athletes. Um, 
yeah, just just being able to contribute in a positive way is I, I love it. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's not to say it's not stressful at times because it it is, and you know, sport can be really stressful. Um, but I wouldn't swap it for anything. So, so I've got sort of three. Uh, three big questions to ask I suppose to, to jump into so the first one we touched on it just a few moments ago about I suppose mental health it's a, it's a big subject at the moment uh, as it is just generally in, in, in life how do you see that interacting with sport and how do you see that from a psycho, psych, psychology point of view very open question I appreciate it just, <laughs> yeah. how, just start? how long have uh, you got yeah yeah um, I, I think I, I'd, I'd go to that um, with coaches and parents, the way they set up training environments for kids. It's a real opportunity to to teach them coping strategies that are going to help them in their, their wider lives. Uh, I, I think that's a real easy win, if you like. Right. Yeah. So then, I know, I mean, you speak to people as well, they talk about exercising as well to help your mental health. I assume there's a balance somewhere between there of you know, perhaps people who've got mental health uh pressures around them and they, they want to exercise we've t- talking to we've talked to a few people who, who've used exercise as a way of uh coping with those mental mental health problems but then potentially obviously could tip into the other side of mm. putting so much pressure on them in their sport that they're, they're it's a vicious circle and they're back into those i, yeah. think, I guess it's a fine balance I, th- I think if you you know if you look at it holistically are, are you sleeping well are you eating well um are you getting off your backside are you moving around and and are you are you speaking to other human beings or are you just you know on your phone all the time? Mm-hmm. To me, they're the, they're the four four key areas, and you know we don't really know what this social media effect is going to be long term mm-hmm. on kids, even adults. You know, you see more and more adults who are struggling to put their phones down. You got Facebook. You know, these kids might have thousand, two thousand friends on Facebook, but you know how many do they speak to mm-hmm. on a regular basis? Um, so I think developing those relationships are key for for mental health. That's you know that's my take on it, and coaches can can play a massive role in that. It was to, um, we we went to a conference uh, a week or two ago, and there was a psychiatrist talking there. He's doing a lot of work with the English Institute of Sport and some Premier League football clubs, and he was saying that um, even Morrison's checkout staff are trained to to help people with mental health to spot certain signs and ask specific wow. questions so yeah. you know we've all got a role to play in it mm. I think that's interesting all right okay because I, 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 I remember a number of years ago looking at teachers I'm sure they're similar they're, they're asked with teaching pupils to spot signs for many many different things and that's, I presume that's also one and I guess it'll probably if it's well there's probably elements of it in business already but more and more obviously staff well-being etc is vitally important but being more aware of signs to look for etc yeah my worry really is that um businesses are maybe ticking a box when it comes to mental mm. health and well-being you know let's let's get someone in they can give a talk there we tick the box we've done mental health and well-being and you know it in my opinion it needs to go a lot further than that so can you expand on what where you think that just going going back to some of those other things like you know um, putting on programs for staff so i know um christian varley's been doing work with the uh, the teachers so he's been mm. i think he started off doing a couch to 5k program and then it progressed from there i think they did some some did the parish walk as well yeah. and it's you know that's fantastic for me it's, it's getting people out of the office uh, out in the fresh air which is so important 
you know, they're training together, so they're building relationships. So you think they're going to be a stronger team in the work environment as well then. Um, I, th- I think programs like that are just, just a massive win-win. You know, mm. why why wouldn't you? Mm. Mm. So so one of the, my uh, sort of follow-ups then, of bigger questions then about psychology, when you're looking at team and individual sport, does that approach differ from your perspective? Well, what's an individual sport? Hmm. Uh, maybe an athlete, uh, you know, a five k runner, say, compared to football. Uh, yeah, I mean, football. I, I think I, I sort of, yeah, I, ca- I came into it maybe with an individual versus team sport mentality. But the, the more you you meet athletes, especially at the higher level, there's there's no such thing as an individual sport. They, you know, they they are part of the team. Okay. Um, so it. So when you say something like you mean team, so using the five k runner as an example, his team is. All the people around him, his friends, his yeah. family. There's a team environment. Yeah. I appreciate none of them are running, but they all form part of his uh, structure and network. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, he's getting different types of support from different people. You know, whether it be that be tangible like money, or whether it's information, emotional support, whether it's advice on psychology or nutrition mm. or strength and conditioning, he's not going to be able to do it on his own. So interesting. So I, I wouldn't necessarily differentiate between team mm. and individual mm. obviously when you come into the team environment you've got those um team dynamics in football and you know hockey and rugby those sorts of sports um but again you know, you know those kind of skills that we're talking about so leadership and communication and commitment they they can all be done at, at a young level by grassroots coaches mm. I, I think you know why why can't we introduce a, a specific psychological aim for a coaching session as well as a technical aim mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and would that you know at elite level is that kind of thing happening already would you see you know i presume if you're playing for a big football club that that's part of their processes already it's sorry could you well i suppose in regard to bringing that uh you talk about technical aspects of tr- training and then mm-hmm. within that same session you bring in psychological things to work on is that happening at elite level sport already yeah, so that, that session encompasses both. Then it's not just about you know kicking, kicking, you know, scoring a penalty, for example. You know, they work twenty minutes on that, but within that, they might be working on psychology within that session. Yeah, I mean, at, definitely at a younger level, they will be. Yeah, right. that will be massively integrated, and yeah, coaches will be will be looking at things like communication as you know a specific skill that they can work on in a session. Well, that's interesting. Okay, so one of the other uh, sort of main questions we'd like to delve in is I know you've done some research around the TT. Obviously, very mantra-related uh, subject. As an outsider watching it, you you kind of look at the risks and just think the guys have got a couple of screws loose. Uh, you obviously, I'm sure, dug in and, and you research, find out where those screws aren't actually probably loose. So maybe talk through what that project was and what it what it what it led to you learning. Yeah, well, I I was interested. Uh, I mean, obviously, being Manx and interested in the TT, we all are, aren't we? Not Manx, Manx. Not Manx, Manx, but. <laughs> Manx enough. Um, so I, the media view of riders is that yeah they're adrenaline junkies and they've got a couple of screws loose, and that didn't marry up with my the knowledge I had of, of riders that I knew. So I was really keen to dig in um, to TT riders. It's, you know it's a different area. There's no research there. There's very little in motorsport in general, to be honest. Um, and yeah, just thought it was a great opportunity to, to sort of, you know, find out what was going on. So, so yeah, I, I did a, 
sort of wide ranging scoping study really so I, I managed to recruit four riders can I, can I just interrupt was that was that in conjunction with Isle of Man Sport or anything like that was this just part of for like better with a thesis or, or a research yeah, this paper was, you wanted to do this was just do? part of a research paper okay. that, that I wanted to do yeah, yeah. Um, so I recruited four riders um, they were either winners or had multiple podiums so very very experienced and it was basically I did life history interviews with them mm. so finding out how they first got into bikes um, through their adolescence and uh, into TT so it, it, it wasn't necessarily around you know how do they prepare for a TT race it was more about sort of what led them to, to race at the TT so yeah I mean you said about the risk um, you know it's people I speak to you know when I've shared this research with people that they they focus on the risk um but but my kind of overriding take was that these are just guys doing a sport that they love and like you do cycling or I do fell running and you know at that basic level what's Mm. the difference um but people have this uh, opinion of risk and so maybe based on our own assumptions we say that's a risky activity and then we, we view it in a different way. Mm, well, yeah, I suppose my logic will be, it is a hell of a lot riskier. So what, what, why is their brain ticking differently to go, it's, it's not that risky? I don't think they're saying it's not risky. Mm. They're, they're saying, yes, there's risk involved, higher risk than other sports, but if I prepare diligently, like, like we know they do, then they can manage it. Then I can, I can win a TT. Mm. And um, what else did you learn from, from that study? Well, a couple of other things that, that I found interesting, which one of which I'm going to follow up on in some further research, was the influence of fathers. It was huge at a very young age. So, you know, many, many of the guys, as you probably heard anecdotally, but they, they come from racing backgrounds. Um, so, yeah, I was actually surprised how many of them do get into bikes at a really young age. So maybe motocross bikes are the they're doing a bit of handling when they're young um, yeah so the influence of fathers and then the, the sort of rationale for doing the TT as well because you know on the Isle of Man here we're told that it's you know the greatest road race on the world and, and you know why wouldn't you want to do the TT but there were, there were a variety of factors for people choosing to do the TT okay um, so what type of factors were they? financial was one Um looking for something different was another um is that in a sense of motor gp or in or on that side of the scales doing that race rather than the riskier or however you want to put it tt one i think it, doing short circuits in the uk is is a really really expensive business right. and if you're not maybe top six then you know you it, it's going to be hard for you it's going to cost you a lot of money um, so perhaps the TT is a route to maybe getting a you know if you can put down a decent ride at the TT get some sponsorship that might pay for your short circuit racing for the rest of the year so oh, okay. you know there, there's a lot of factors in play uh, for these guys it's, it's like I said I came into it because of this media conception it was very very simplistic you know this is why they do TT because they're nutters basically and it, that just couldn't be further from the truth from, from what I've found I assume an element of it is adrenaline there must be an element of adrenaline because you 
It must be amazing, must yeah, it? Can you imagine yeah. going down Bray Hill at 170 <laughs> miles an hour? Try not to. Yeah. Wow, you know, that must be an incredible buzz. Yeah. Um, but I, as one of them said to me, if it was just about the buzz, you know, why not just take drugs? Because it'd be a hell of a lot cheaper. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay. Uh, so then, uh, moving on, and I, I suppose it might fall out of biking as well, uh, and, and psychology when, when you know people get injuries and dealing with that aspect of not being able to compete uh, or, or perhaps if they're not, you know, I suppose even for taking that a step further, if you're deselected from teams, you're coming up to retirement. Obviously we chatted chat to George in a previous podcast about his, his, his injury as well and how you deal with that. So how do you, how do you find the work you do around that with athletes and coaches? And how do you see it working in general? Yeah. So they're really, really important injury, deselection and retirement. They've in the, it sounds a bit academic-y, but they've been called transitions in the past. But I think that really gives quite a false impression of what they're like. You know, that gives the impression of it's it's a smooth journey. Um, so more recently, we start talking about them as critical moments. Um, if you think about injury, deselection, retirement, you know, they're, they're big, big life moments. And it was it was interesting hearing George talking about his injury, and then and the issues he had around that, and it re- he really linked into identity there, outside of his narrow rugby identity. You know what? Who was George? And I think he was lost for for a little time there, mm. and and they're the kind of, you know, as a rough overview, that that's the kind of thing that that we work on. It's right. Let's look at identity. Yes, you can be a hundred percent committed to your sport, but when that's not delivering for you, what else have you got to rely on? So family, friends. Um, Sam talked about his. Um, changing diabetes didn't he mm. um you know he's got something in parallel that mm. he can rely on if he's deselected or if he's injured mm-hmm. uh, so I, I think that's certainly that's the way it's been going more recently is how can we encourage a broad identity because if you look at some of the cultural practices in sport they would say the exact opposite you know you've got to be all in yeah, fully yeah. committed you know that kind of language so if, if you take the example of, let's say, a, a lad in a football academy gets in at seven years old and is in the academy for 10 years, he's been told, yeah, you're going to make it, you're going to make it, you're going to make it. And then at 17, he comes in and he's told, no, you're not going to make it, see you later. Mm-hmm. So you think that lad's group of friends are all going to be footballers, so he's lost them overnight. He's probably given up a lot of education to do football training, so he suffered with his education um, and, uh, and yeah you know that can be a really challenging time mm-hmm. if you're just kicked out of the system at that age with nothing else to rely on then wow. identity. Yeah. That, you know that's yeah. hard yeah. No, that, George talked about that a lot yeah like say yeah. that identity of uh, that was, that's all he knew yeah exactly yeah, yeah. exactly and I, I think that is the challenge for coaching practice is how can we encourage broad identity and are you actively know projecting that or, or you know using that as part of your your day-to-day work now yeah so I, i'd sit sit down with an athlete and uh, as i said you know my view is that they're the expert on them so so maybe let, let's let's dig in you know when you're at your best what what the things look like they might you know they could start talking about anything but it might be you know i had a, a wider social circle of friends um so then we just get into topics like that and you know I, I'm encouraging them to, to think about these things mm-hmm. but ultimately 
you know, my question is, what what do you need to do? I, I'm not telling them that they need to do this or they need to do that. Um, mm. I'm, I'm just helping them with their self awareness, really. Mm-hmm. And the the injury side of things, if you know, obviously there's a certain element of identity, but just looking at the sports psychology around, you know, you you know, you, you've, you're going through this sports cycle. You still want to get back to being, you know good at whatever you're doing but you've just got an injury when you're working with someone who might have just got injured you know four days ago they broke their leg can't play football for six months the the psychology of sit would you, would you sit with them then and talk about I suppose maybe less identity more about dealing with again maybe dealing with the process of the rehab and, and setting goals do you, do you deal with that aspect of things yeah but I think at that at that early stage it is more about identity and meaning right, okay. because yeah they, they they maybe start to think well Will I come back from this? And if I don't, what what am I going to do? So, so yeah, maybe, maybe that is the time to deal with those deeper points. And then what you know, people might start investigating different areas of their life. Um, then they'll get into a rehab program. They'll start getting back into it. Then it'll be closer to a return to competition. So then maybe it'll be some confidence work. Um, but that's the kind of general pattern when it yeah. comes to injury, I would say. Yeah. Um, and then, and then. Often there's this period after the return from injury, there's this period of reflection where they're looking back on sort of the positives from the adversity. I know you talked to Sam about adversity and that's, you know, it's quite common as well. People look back and they, they say things like, you know, I'm a better person for that or I'm glad that happened. And, yeah. You know, Sam certainly didn't talk about his um, diabetes in negative terms. It was always, this is a really positive thing for me. Yeah, okay. So you, you're trying to, not educate them, but edu- educate them to, to, to think that way rather than uh, take the positive out of that situation and rather yeah. than the negative. Yeah, well, you, you think about maybe, let's say, deselection. So, you know, if you're dropped from a team, there's there's really two ways to react. You can go off sulking or you can say, right, what do I need to do? So, you know, from a psychologist's point of view, that you know, that's brilliant. If you've got an athlete coming to you saying, right, I will do anything now to get back in this team, then you know that's the sort of person I want to be working yeah, with. Yeah, you know yeah. that's that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah right. And uh, uh, earlier on, we were talking about psychology being, or certainly probably ten years ago, very elite level. Do you see, or, or used more a lot in elite level, and perhaps less in grassroots? You're obviously seeing it more and more in grassroots people. And it's not a lot of it's just to deal with. You know, not you know, use me as an example. I'm never going to perform at a high level in the context of of, of sport. But it just helps them find that work-life balance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, the the official title is sport and exercise mm. psychology. So th- there's lots in the exercise yeah. field as well. So if you think about maybe um, GP referral programs, so so maybe uh, people who've got health problems who've been referred for exercise. So uh, you know, I, th- I think psychology can help with these kind of couch to five k programs, yeah. or even helping sort of gym instructors giving clients a bit more autonomy in the gym um that might you know help them to stick to a a sort of a a physical health plan so rather than you know i know it happens in the uk i'm not so sure of the system over here but yeah they'll be referred for a physical health program so they'll go to a gym and the instructor will say right you do 10 minutes on the treadmill and even something as simple as saying would you like to go on the treadmill or the exercise bike gives that person an element of control mm. which then enhances their motivation which means they're more likely to stick to to the program yeah, right. so you know some of these things are really really common sense yeah, yeah. but 
but it's just making them common practice that's the challenge. So that's reminding me of a story of when I was younger. My mother used to say, now it transpired, she maybe some psychology, she wanted me to eat fruit and I'd never want to eat it. So instead of going, can you have this apple? She'd go, do you want this apple or banana? Because I had some control over that. Yeah. that decision making process I'd then pick one and eat one and that yeah. was her way of making me eat fruit so I guess it's you know similar concept yeah and we're yeah. back to free will there aren't we yeah. <laughs> so you've been given a constrained choice yeah. you had free will <laughs> within certain boundaries yeah yeah yeah. yeah mother playing mind games with me. <laughs> uh, so what we do as well uh, as we lead up um, into the uh, podcast we put out to our listeners to if they want any particular questions asked and we had a couple in so uh, I could bounce them off you if you don't mind I'll give it a go. Yeah. So uh, one of the questions that was interesting, actually, and I'll uh, plagiarise it somewhat, uh, but, but they were talking about uh, in medicine, for those you know, trials they do, you can take a placebo, or placebos are given to uh, to see if the medicine that people are being trialled on actually works, or whether there's just a placebo because I'm doing something or taking something, therefore I feel better. And that feels like very much like a psychological game. So replying, is that really the same effect as when, you, when you're talking about sports psychology and the, the, the mind and that uh, a lot of that, or a lot of things are you know, obviously just mind and psychological related. Mm. Not, not to necessarily dig into medicines, but just that placebo effect of I'm doing this and therefore you know, you're tra- training the brain subconsciously, I guess. Yeah, I mean, so placebo is related to, to belief, isn't it? You, you're giving mm. somebody the belief um, in, in the product, you know, the little white sugar pill that you you've provided them with you know they believe it's it's going to do something that it's not necessarily going to do physically to them and there's a big big ethical moral debate in medicine at the moment about whether people should be prescribed placebos and what is uh what is that debate exactly or in summary well you're lying to patients essentially and Mm -hmm. as a medical professional should you be doing that right okay even if it is potentially going to have the desired effect oh right okay that's interesting okay are there actual sorry just ask another one is there actual talks of stopping placebos is there like as from my knowledge they are still being issued so is there enough traction to kind of stop that in a sense or or are we not to know is that the placebo in itself (laughs) (laughs) double placebo yeah yeah. the the old double bluff um well you strain into areas where it's not really my area yeah, of expertise. Yeah. So, I, yeah, some GPs and and medical professionals will not prescribe placebos yeah, yeah, okay. on ethical and moral grounds, yeah. and, and yeah. you know that's that's down to them. Uh, so, hopefully, that answered the, the question we had. And the other question was just around superstition and the role it does or doesn't play. Again, I guess it's a psychology process. What's your views on it? And you know, do you think so? Uh, do you think they exist really? So, or do you think it's just wearing the lucky socks and things yeah, like that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely superstitious behaviour. I think it's, um, Michael Jordan was a great example of that, didn't he? Wear his North Carolina shorts under his oh, yeah, Chicago okay. Bulls shorts. Yeah. I think that's why shorts got longer in <laughs> basketball. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, uh, you know, generally in sports, athletes will have what what we'd call a pre-performance routine. Um, which is a series of steps they go through prior to competing. And often that is to, because they can compete in different competitions, different parts of the world, um, it, it gives them control, uh, a certain element of control um, when they might not otherwise have it. So if you go through a certain process before you perform, 
then you can control that and it can look the same every single time so you can get confidence from that and uh, maybe it helps you to relax a little bit all those kind of things and often superstition is is part of that so yeah maybe you you have your lucky socks or you put your left on before your right or you don't shave on the day of a game whatever it might be mm-hmm. um and what's your views on them superstitions uh well if it, you know if it's part of your regular controllable routine then yeah why not if it if it helps you mm-hmm. you know what wh- why not I keep wearing my underpants when I get on my bike. Then. Uh, so if people want to reach out to you and uh, get in touch with that, how will they do that, Rich? Oh, I'm dead easy to find on the internet. Um, <laughs> that sounds a bit ominous. <laughs> richsill.com is is the website, and on Twitter, at richsill. And I've got a Facebook page as well, uh, richsillsp. Okay, so go and, uh, go and hunt, them, hunt them out. Well, we'll also put them on our uh, footnotes. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, well, thanks. And thanks for, uh, I think that's all we had, question wise. So thanks for coming in, Richard. Mm, very insightful. You. Yeah, appreciate your time and uh, chat, chatting through the bits. Well, thanks very much for having me. Really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, it's been great fun. Yeah. Pleasure. Thanks. So, Matthew, have you got a few things to tell our listeners before we disappear? Yep, the, no yep, the usual. Um, so, please like, subscribe, and share this from wherever you're currently listening, whether that's Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or else. Please, if you can, also give us those five-star reviews to make Go us on, look please, good. Please. Um, media platforms, Facebook, we're under the M-Word podcast. Twitter, our handle is Manx Sports Pod, And on Instagram, we are the M-Word IOM. We've also put out a couple of posts um, about recommending guests. So if you are or know someone who'd like to get in contact and share their story with us, please do so. And to steal uh, the word from Peter Crouch's podcast, if you listen to that, please pass on the pod as well. That's uh, that would be good for us. Carefully, don't come after us. For yeah, well, yeah, for sli- yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't sue us, please, Mister Crouch. We like you. Uh, so that's a word out from Mon and word out from Matt.